thank you for taking part of your afternoon to, uh, to come listen to uh, a Christian perspective on gender dysphoria. Before we start, I'm just doing a check to make sure both exits are open for me. Just, um, well, uh, we, we live in some interesting times. A couple of years ago, we all witnessed a very public transition of Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn, provocatively displayed on the cover of Vanity Fair. Uh, and her photo shoot follows on the heels of a 2014 news or Time magazine cover, which featured Laverne Cox of uh, the Netflix drama The Orange is the New Black. Uh, in 2014, HBO also created another drama entitled Transparent, where the actor Jeffrey Tambor plays Morton, who is a retired professor of political science, and he opens up to his family about always feeling as if he were a woman. Morton starts dressing and living as a woman named Mara, and the show's creator, Jill Soloway, says that this series was about publicly exploring the concept of gender identity through, and I'm quoting now, a wounded father being replaced by a blossoming femininity. Soloway has been outspoken in proactively hiring transgender applicants. Uh, more recently, we've heard about the uproar uh, with public restroom use at Target when they decided to allow individuals to use the bathroom they felt most comfortably using. And so in our cultural lexicon or dictionary, we are finding new terms that have been added over the last year or so. This notion of gender identity is one of them. Gender fluidity, uh, gender nonconformity. Uh, and uh, these concepts are becoming, uh, they're not just on the fringes of culture, they're gradually moving their way towards the center of a bigger discussion. So I, I want to look real briefly at some, some generic terminology. This is straight from the APA, American Psychological Association. Uh, transgender is, is an um, umbrella term, as, as, the, as this definition indicates, used to describe the full range of people whose gender identity or gender role do not conform to what is typically associated with their sex assigned at birth. Uh, what exactly is gender identity? Here again, the APA defines this as follows. Uh, apologies if this font is a, a little bit small. Gender identity is defined as a person's deeply felt inherent sense of being a girl, woman, or female, a boy, a man, or male, a blend of male or female, or an alternative gender, uh, such as gender queer, gender nonconforming, gender neutral, that may or may not correspond to a person's sex assigned at birth. Uh, pay, pay attention to that language. I think that's significant, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Or to a person's primary or secondary sex characteristics, because gender identity is internal, a person's gender identity is not necessarily visible to others. Uh, there's a licensed clinical social worker and Jungian analyst, that's quite a mouthful, her name is Lisa Marciano, who has observed, and I'm quoting them here, her here, the medical 
and psychiatric establishment have seized upon an easily digestible narrative that is based in the ideology of innate gender identity. She goes on to say, even though we really uh, have no meaningful definition of the term, even though we've just looked at one, she says, and I'm quoting again, the concept of gender identity is currently being enshrined into law. And she is someone who is concerned that the, the way of speaking of this, say, uh, more colloquially on the streets is something along this lines. Gender is between the ears, not between the legs. In a recent issue of National Geographic, the activist Gloria Steinem said that we'd be better off getting rid of the idea of gender altogether. And I'm quoting her now. The more polarized the gender roles, the more violent the society. The idea of race and the idea of gender are divisive. To complicate matters further, we have the more well-known concept of sexual orientation, which is also a component of someone's identity. It's not the same as gender identity, but there may be indeed a link between them, and we'll talk about that briefly. Uh, but with the advent of uh, this growing phenomenon, we find uh, an increasing gap between one's uh, biology, right, one's given biology, and one's identity. And this relationship appears to be increasingly complex. What was once thought to be simple is not the case anymore. And I think we are living in the midst of a cultural revolution of what's been called the age of gender nonconformity that is bent on defying gender stereotypes altogether by celebrating this notion of fluidity. An interesting uh, comment by a, a French philosopher by the name of Herr Jouvent, probably mispronounced that, um, but he says the myth of the body without origin, character, country, or determination is a powerful presence in fashion, the economy, and in political discourse. And entities and uh, internet, internet sites are seizing on this. A couple of years ago, Facebook received a lot of criticism over only allowing people to identify as male or female. So they uh, decided to increase the options from two to over 50. Um, you could be a male to female or gender fluid, or you could identify as non-binary or gender queer, or even two spirit. I have no idea what that means. I think um, it, it may be tied to the Native American community, but there were multiple options. And then just last year, Facebook decided that these 50 possibilities were still too limiting, so now uh, you're allowed to identify any way you see fit. So amidst this kind of cultural shift, many who were once went to great lengths to hide any felt discrepancy between their gender identity and their bodies have been encouraged by the movement of very public transgender celebrities to move into the cultural mainstream. Though uh, the growing uh, though the growing public acceptance of these figures has also spawned reminders that the vast majority of those dealing with stress between 
a disconnect between identity and body, uh, continue to deal with multiple forms of harassment and discrimination. So uh, what in particular is gender dysphoria? Uh, I'm glad you asked. That's what we're here to talk about. It is a, it is a subset under this transgender umbrella. And I've got another uh, definition for you according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is DSM-5 is the latest version of this. Um, it understands dysphoria as follows. Uh, a marked incongruence between one's experienced expressed gender and assigned gender. Here's that language again of assigned gender. There's a, a, a scholar by the name of Mark Yarhouse, one of the few evangelicals who has actually addressed this issue and published on it, or written a book uh, on gender dysphoria from a Christian perspective. He, he largely echoes that for what it's worth. He's, he defines this as the experience of distress with the incongruence wherein one's psychological and emotional gender identity does not match one's biological sex. As I mentioned before, we should not be too quick to conflate gender dysphoria with homosexuality, though the conversations get complicated rather quickly. Nor should we confuse this with that subset of kind of um, aberrant behaviors where individuals derive some form of sexual pleasure from uh, activities or behavior or dressing as the opposite sex, yet have no desire whatsoever to become the opposite sex. Again, uh, I want to stress the characteristic feature of gender dysphoria is this high degree of anxiety perceived over uh, this discrepancy. Most people who have been diagnosed with this would say they're miserable. And we need to keep that in mind because there's another cultural narrative that says this is uh, Hollywood's attempt to wreck the family. Um, I'm not saying that's not true, but I think things are typically more complicated than a lot of Christians uh, than a lot of Christians tend to express themselves on the internet. We'll just say it that way. Um, this uh, this has rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, this definition of dysphoria. Uh, a lot of Christians in particular are irritated by this because DSM-4, the, the prior release of this uh, statistical manual, did not adopt the term gender dysphoria. The, the term, rather, was gender identity disorder. And so uh, a lot of people have said, well, that's, that's quite nice. You've, you've changed the name. Um, what's behind that? And so... Uh, they're very straightforward about why they've gone to that shift, and in their own words, I'm summarizing their rationale for changing the name. Um, and the first is this term dysphoria is meant to focus more on an individual's experience, um, and the, while the word disorder, right, it carries kind of moral overtones. It Disorder sounds like right and wrong. Dysphoria has a more existential component. We're not here to make moral judgments. We're here to help individuals manage these profound feelings of, of depression and sadness. So dysphoria 
captures that label. It's the op opposite of euphoria. Um, it also, they're hoping, reduces the possibility of stigma being attached to this condition. The reality continues to be that many individuals who, uh, who are diagnosed with this face uh, an enormous amount of pressure and uh, opposition from family members, from coworkers, and are often harassed. Uh, it's also, again, meant to existentialize a condition or focus more on the experience and not so much on, again, how we interpret this uh, morally. So uh, dysphoria acknowledges that people who have this condition experience varying degrees of distress over the condition from very little to very great. That's another rationale for this. Not everyone's experience is the same because we're all different. And then finally, uh, it accommodates this notion that for some people it may indeed be temporary, which is uh, not a common aspect of the narrative right now culturally. But we'll, we can talk more about that later. You can uh, ask some questions at the end. Um, what about causes? In reality, uh, no one really knows for sure. Most health professionals would say there is likely uh, a pathological element, but there is, there's no clear connection right now between physiology and one's response to one's own body. There are some Christian groups like Focus on the Family and others that are very resistant to the notion that there may be a biological component here to gender dysphoria, um, and they cite a few studies that suggest that at the very least we need more research on the subject, uh, and, and we do. So um, my public plea is to be careful in weighing in as Christians if we, uh, if we have an online, uh, online presence. Um, what are the prescribed forms of treatment? This is letter D. Here I'm largely interacting with the literature that we find, and I'm, I'm giving a range of options here that I've come across. Most of them will not be very satisfying, and, and that's okay. Um, at the extreme, there is this notion that um, there's really nothing wrong with anybody except those who don't wrestle with this, and so what we need to do is not help individuals, but we need to change culturally so that we come to accept anybody's gender identity for any reason whatsoever. Clinical psychologist Robin Rosenberg adopts this view. And I think it falls in line with Gloria Steinem's comment earlier that if we could just get rid of gender identity altogether, the world would be a happier place. Uh, but more generally and more commonly, the attempts by the professional community are aimed at reducing the sense of someone's dysphoria without challenging their own concept of identity. So attempt to reduce the feelings of dysphoria, but don't challenge someone's sense of who they are. Um, and, and that's a big deal. Um, and, and this is also, I'm not prepared to talk about this today, but uh, next week I can address this. This is the overwhelming bent for an increasing number of teenage girls who are identifying as gender neutral or want to agenda, uh, identify as male. Um, in the professional community, uh, 
there is this marked movement or a strong resistance against challenging even what a teenager may feel about her body. Um, and parents are being encouraged to give their teens a voice in their understanding of identity and uh, backing off of maybe suggesting that um, maybe we ought to rethink ourselves. And then if, uh, if you pass enough protocols, if you have a formal diagnosis and um, you want to progress uh, and to, to help mitigate the effects of this condition, the next steps would be hormonal therapy to begin the transition. And then uh, after some hormonal therapy, uh, surgery would eventually follow. So if, for instance, Bill identifies as a woman, even though he is profoundly and perhaps clinically depressed, therapy should not include helping Bill to identify as a man, which matches his birth sex. Rather, Bill's physical appearance should be altered to help match what he feels about himself internally to reduce the anxiety. And for those individuals who are nearly unable to function in life, Gender surgery offers uh, the, the last respite. Um, so that's, that's not a happy, that's not necessarily a, a happy thing. Uh, this is again from, um, this is from a, a document related to DSM, the, the, the manual. N note how it approaches things. Gender dysphoria is a unique condition in that it is a diagnosis made by mental health care providers Although a large proportion of the treatment is hormonal, I, I can't say endocrinological, very, I, I, I got through it there, but it was awkward. And I practiced multiple times. I'm just gonna go with hormonal um, and surgical. And then a parenthetical remark, at least for some adolescents and most adults. There are some who are pushing to uh, up the surgery age from 18 to say 14 or 13, uh, which again, given that the, our brains uh, are still developing through our teenage years up into through our early 20s, that is uh, mildly disturbing to say the least. Now there are disputes over forms of treatment in the medical community, specifically this whole idea of gender reassignment surgery there is a uh, distinguished professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins by the name of Paul McHugh, who uh, was actually involved in pioneering sex change operations or gender reassignment surgery more than a couple decades ago at Johns Hopkins. He finally came out and said, this surgery doesn't work. He says, it's, he said, I see no demonstrated benefits. And so for a while, Johns Hopkins uh, stopped performing these assignment surgeries. He sees gender dis, uh, well, yeah, he sees gender dysphoria as something akin to anorexia nervosa uh, or other body dysmorphic disorders. So when he public, uh, when he commented publicly on Bruce Jenner, he suspected that Jenner was likely just deriving some type of erotic pleasure from acting out as a female and that there's really, there's no benefit to be derived here. Um, 
in his own words. There's no evidence that supports the claim that people such as Bruce Jenner have a biological source for their transgender assumptions. Admittedly, the data here is very murky. There is a, a recent study in Sweden that indicated that those who had gender reassignment surgery had a threefold increased risk of all-cause mortality over against the control group. But these authors also cite other studies that indicate that gender reassignment surgery has improved the quality of life for some individuals. But there are, there, there's a steady stream of uh, a growing amount of stories from individuals who have had the surgery and have gone on to regret it and have actually de-transitioned, but not without uh, lasting uh, irrevocable consequences. So there's a blogger by the name of Max Robinson who had transitioned from a female to a male by having surgery at age 16, but she was miserable and has since detransitioned, but with, with a scarred body. Uh, this is readily available on the web. These are her own words. I transitioned from a female to male at 16, was on testosterone, had a double mastectomy by 17, and I am absolutely traumatized by what happened to me, and I'm not the only one. Early in my transition, I went through menopause. This caused vaginal atrophy and drip incontinence that has persisted for years. The next sentence, which I don't have up there, she puts kind of crassly, basically, I slowly urinate on myself all day long. My double mastectomy was severely traumatizing. I paid a guy, a guy who does this every day for cash, to drug me to sleep and cut away healthy tissue. I did this because I believed it would heal all of the emotional issues I was blaming on my female body. It didn't work. Now I'm still all messed up and I'm missing body parts too. Transition didn't help. There is no surgery that will undo what's been done. So what's interesting is the, uh, the article that I pulled this information from is coming out quite strongly against transitional surgery, but rather is encouraging people to be more comfortable um, being gay. So um, she now lives as a lesbian female and has embraced that identity, and for her, changing her body was a way to try to cope with these feelings of being a lesbian. So. She has now embraced that identity, but now has a scarred body on, on top of it. So um, oddly enough, the, the, the argument of this article was we ought to encourage people to be comfortable um, being homosexual and not attack their bodies, um, just for what it's worth. But there, uh, this website contains hundreds of stories from individuals who have regretted the surgery and some who have attempted to detransition. Uh, it still poses real challenges to medicine itself. It challenges the Hippocratic tradition, which operates under this principle, you know, first do no harm, which oddly enough actually isn't in the Hippocratic Oath or anywhere in 
the whole corpus of literature, but it does seem to have some vague connection to, to the Hippocratic tradition. Um, more specifically, we find this, this tension between doing the patient good while recognizing removing healthy organs is not considered a medical good. Uh, it's hard to get surgeons to remove healthy organs. It can happen in some instances, but that's usually in the United Kingdom. Uh, dealing with another uh, very unusual, very rare disorder known as body identity integrity disorder. Here, individuals are convinced that they'd be happier if they were missing a limb. And the odd thing is, is that the few times that people have had surgery to amputate a healthy limb, um, the feelings of dysphoria completely evaporate and they go on living a pseudo-normal pseudo life, absent the need of any further therapy or drugs or antidepressants. Um, a very rare condition, but that, that's another example of how the medical community is being challenged here. I thought, uh, I thought I had another slide, maybe. Oh, I, I forgot the other slide. There you go. Um, George Brown, I think, put it very eloquently. If, if we are trying to do no harm, do we harm less by operating more or harm more by operating less? This debate will continue in, in the medical community, although it seems to be that, um, again, we're moving in favor of transitioning surgically in order to let someone's internal sense of self match their external bodies. On the other hand, we also have uh, an ethical debate between the Hippocratic tradition and what's known as modern biomedical ethics, which uh, is, has come on the scene in the last 20 years in part to, uh, to address what is seen as an antiquated system in Hippocratic medicine. So modern biomedical ethics heralds the principles of autonomy, of uh, beneficence, of justice, and non-maleficence. So any any, anyone who's received any medical training or is in that process will at some point take at least one course on medical ethics, although I hardly think one is enough, but um, at least one course on medical ethics where they will be exposed to these new principles of biomedical ethics. Where do those principles come from? Well, they're derived from somewhere. Um, they seem to have some cultural relevance. The notion of autonomy is, is helpful in medicine. It, it has come from a context where uh, you know, the generation past physicians would often engage in some unscrupulous exercises to gain knowledge over against the patient. So this idea of autonomy has been indoctrinated into ethics to give patients the right to either refuse or accept treatments. Uh, the problem, um, in many cases, however, is that autonomy is beginning to swing to the other, other side, so to speak, where doctors are starting to be um, viewed as service providers, which isn't, isn't, isn't helpful either, quite frankly. Um, it's, it's shaping medicine. Nevertheless, that's a side conversation. Um, but under the notion of autonomy, um, we can see how this flows in quite nicely to the idea of having a transition surgery. The center of clinical decision-making in modern medicine is the moral imperative to respect the autonomy of the patient, to make an informed decision regarding 
surgery. So again, that's, um, that kind of tells you ethically where the bent is. So um, in, the, in the time we have left, I would like to talk about some fundamental principles of Christian ethics and try to give some Christian interpretation of this phenomenon. Um, so this is Roman numeral four. If, if you're tracking with me, thank you. You're, 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 this is as close to a kind of seminary classroom environment um, that, that you'll probably, that you'll encounter here. This is, if you've ever wondered what seminary is like, well, you're getting a dose of it right now, which may be a good or bad thing, but um, there you go. Uh, what is Christian ethics? I've been a professional Christian ethicist for over a decade, and I'm not sure I have a good definition yet. Um, and there is very little agreement among ethicists beyond the, the big ones, like uh, love God and your neighbor, and that the Bible and the teachings of Jesus are somehow central. Um, but once you get beyond that, um, all bets are off. There are at least five different theories of how the Bible should be used in Christian ethics. Five. Uh, there may be more, but I, uh, I've appreciated deeply the, the thought process and teachings of Oliver O'Donovan. We're not going to go into any of the details about how the Bible should be used in ethics. We're going to follow a, a two-step procedure that I think applies to Christian ethics in particular in any possible situation. And it's, it's on the surface, it's, it's helpful. Um, the first step is, is the big one, that um, if Christians, even Christian ethicists, if they're likely to skip over something or move perhaps too quickly to moral principles or the Bible, this is the one that gets left out. Uh, and I think that's, that's deeply unfortunate. The other unfortunate thing about interpreting the situation, step one, is that it is enormously difficult to interpret the situation. Uh, let alone interpret scripture. Uh, so in O'Donovan's word, words, uh, he says, it's often been suggested that moral or practical reason is distinguished by the fact that it's prescriptive, you know, do this, don't do that, while theoretical or speculative reason is descriptive. This is the way things are. That is certainly not right. Moral reason has a vast stake in description. It describes particular things, describes their relations and purposes, describes the way the world as a whole fits together. World description belongs, as they say, on the ground floor of practical reason. So the harder questions in Christian ethics are these. What is going on? What are the potential causes? What conception of humanity is presupposed. How do we know this is the case? Only after we at least wrestle with these questions and try to work towards an answer are we in a better position to say, oh, now what has God said? It, not as if we're not interpreting the world from a Christian perspective to begin with, but now we interact more specifically with divine revelation, with, with scripture. Again, um, here, uh, if you've ever read any biblical commentary or any two biblical commentaries, it can sometimes be depressing how, lack, uh, how much lack of agreement there may be between how one particular verse 
is determined or you know whether or not God foreordains people to salvation or they have freedom to reject God etc um, those problems are all over theology and ethics so uh, with those principles in mind I'm gonna give a shot at the first one and then part two and then um, some fairly benign conclusions and, and then questions so uh, what concept of humanity is at work in gender dysphoria um, those who suffer from this are experiencing a profound crisis of identity that can make it so severe that it's difficult for them to function who is the real self where is my identity where is our identity located how does the body contribute to our sense of identity. I think what we're seeing in our culture is a privileging of the inner self over against the outer self. I think it's, it's while well, it's clear that um, our body is a core component of our identity, we also live in an age when the inter, inner self or inner sense of one's being is considered more important than our body. It's it's where our true self lies. Um, I, the technical term for this would be uh, idealism. Idealism. And we could, um, we, could, we could trace that back to Plato and look at some of his dialogues and his philosophy. And I know, I know you're tempted to do that um, today, but we're going to have to move on. Um, um, and he, here are... Here are some of the core features. Uh, it privileges ideas over the material, including our body. One's true self is located in one's self-perception. That is, one's idea of who one is. It's often it's expressed, often expressed rather, as a war between the inner and the outer, reality and appearances, the true self, the embodied self. Plato would say that our world as we see it here is not the true world. It is based on a divine copy in the heavens that is ethereal. It's based on ideas. Completely head spinning because we usually think the other way around. Um, I wouldn't mind getting hit over the head with an ideal baseball bat, but don't hit me with a material one. We also see the influence of uh, romanticism um, which in and of itself was a reaction to enlightenment thought, which for lack of a better description could be described as um, hyper-rational descriptions of the world, uh, the rise of scientific method, and no doubt they produced wonderful findings, uh, wonderful, look, all the advances in medicine are attributed to enlightenment kind of can-do, rational, practical thinking. But then uh, the romantics came along and said, well, what about, you know, what about feelings? What about, what about describing a flower? I mean, do you really want to describe it in scientific language? I mean, you can, but um, how do you describe how a flower smells without relying on different forms of language? Aren't our very feelings precognitive? Like, we have feelings before, and we can identify them, but we need language and rationality to reflect on them and to make sense of them. So some would say 
feelings come first. That's, that would be your, your romantic. Um, a fascinating work written by uh, Charles Taylor called Sources of the Self, which is, you may find that the worst possible title or uh, completely uninteresting reading. But he traces the history of philosophy from pre-Plato up to contemporary philosophers and tries to get at this question of selfhood, what it means to be uh, a self and how philosophers have thought of that through the ages. Uh, but he says this about uh, romantic, uh, romantic thought. Um, this uh, residue of romantic philosophy means espousing the inner elan, the, the voice or impulse, making what was hidden manifest for both myself and others. He, he goes on to say, it's through our feelings that we get to the deepest moral and cosmic truths. Uh, I think we can see an influence of romantic thought in this battle over identity and who counts as a person. I think there's another thread, and I want to move through this one very quickly, but there's also a way to discount the moral significance of the body by looking at the world through an evolutionary perspective. If we are all the products of uh, undirected Darwinian evolution, then why should the body have any moral force whatsoever? I mean, if indeed we've evolved to this point, why don't we take over the process of evolution, evolutionary development with our technology and shape ourselves in ways that make us happy? Okay, so uh, I think those are some of the things at work here. We could talk more about all of them. I don't know if, uh, frankly, you'd find that any more interesting, but I think it's helpful for us to understand um, well, it's helpful to, to make a contrast between how, as uh, Christians, or what a, a theological perspective on humanity might look like. Here, here we would take into account um, scripture. So finally, something from the Bible. Uh, we have been created in God's image as both male and female. This is uh, the first point. And from a Christian perspective, we can confess that our given biology is not merely a random act of evolution. That's a very carefully crafted sentence. And I beg you that we don't discuss evolution and Genesis here today. So, um, but there, there may be a time for that. Um, but we are confessing, this is a theological statement, that the body is given us by God and it is unmistakably good. The creation narratives speak of this, good in both body and soul. Note that the verb create here is used three separate times, which seems to be highly redundant. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. That, that word for man there is Adam, which can mean Adam, but in this usage it means humankind created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Um, three separate times, the Hebrew verb there is barah. It is the same exact verb that occurs in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. So three separate times it's been used. Uh, I, I found Victor Hamilton's take on this quite interesting uh, he says, the idea is not 
unknown in ancient literature that man was first created bisexual. And by that he means, um, this is not sexual orientation, but morphologically. And only subsequently were, were the sexes differentiated. Such is clearly not the meaning here. The verse affirms both that God created in his image. He's reflecting the Hebrew here now. A male Adam, a male human, and a female Adam. Both share the image of God. Sexuality is not an accident of nature, nor is it simply a biological phenomenon. It is instead, or instead, it is a gift of God. Which goes to the second point. Um, our gender is not merely assigned. Rather, our gendered bodies are created by God as a core feature of our identity. In, in the language that's used in our culture today, this, this phrase, assigned gender, keeps occurring. Assigned gender, assigned gender. And I want to ask the question, assigned by whom? Um, nevertheless, I think this word assigned carries a certain sense of arbitrariness um, that the word given or created does not, which are more theological terms. To speak of an assigned gender falls short, I think, of the biblical understanding that is so beautifully expressed by the psalmist. Um, here's more poetry. I say, I say more poetry because um, this is poetry too. Make no mistake. That is a poetic description of God's power and activity. The subtext, it's, um, we ought to be careful about turning that into a statement of science. I promised I wasn't going to go there. We're done with that. Okay. Um, For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise thee, for thou art fearful, thou art fearful and wonderful. Wonderful are thy works. Thou knowest me right well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was being made in secret intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. Other translations will have in the depths of the womb. Again, keeping in mind, this is a poetic expression of God's power that shares some relationship to the world we see, um, but that relationship is not always straightforward. There's a, a Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Uh, he wrote a, a section on the significance of being created in God's image. Actually, he wrote four volumes on the doctrine of creation, and each volume is about 800 pages. And he, he has like a 180-page section just on the fact that God created male and female. And I'm going to summarize that in a PowerPoint, um, <laughs> which, um, which is always dangerous. Uh, and you should always be suspicious if anyone tries to summarize Karl Barth, because he's not easily um, you can pull one quote from him and completely misread him. Nevertheless, in his church dogmatics, he says God, his creator, requires that he, keeping in mind he's you know, writing in the 50s or 1940s, so he means humanity, he should be genuinely and fully the one or the other, male or female, that he should acknowledge his sex instead of trying in some way to deny it that he should rejoice in it rather than be ashamed of it, that he should fruitfully use its potentialities 
rather than neglect them, that he should stick to its limits rather than seek in some way to transcend them. Now, that, that's a theological claim. Um, just because Bart says it here doesn't mean that if we're engaging in people who are struggling with dysphoria that this is what we should say to them. I, I view this as an internal discussion. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute because I think for the most part, largely Christians have uh, not responded very well to those who are transgender. The fourth point, our gender is a good act of God. Sin manifests itself in our particular stance toward our bodies, including our given gender. Uh, in other words, to reject the bodies that we have been given by God is in some way uh, morally uh, a sinful act. Uh, and it's not, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that language for now. Again, keeping in mind this is an internal discussion. Uh, and I'll say more about objections to this in a second. Um, more recently, uh, another one of my favorite theologians, Robert Jensen, who uh, sadly just passed away last year, he, uh, he strongly asserted that any kind of technological attempt to transcend the gender given us by God was, um, well, he just said it was impossible. Um, he, he puts it this way, for my femaleness or maleness is constituted not in malleable or contingent psychology or social construction, but in the shape of the body I am, which can be hated and even mutilated, but cannot actually be given the shape of its counterpart, not even by the most sophisticated technology, although someday that might change. Thus, sexuality is the fact of that identity of subject and object that is the peculiar structure of humanity. So wh what about the objections here? Um, a, a common one is why shouldn't gender identity be taken as the normative instead of one's body? Uh, couldn't you say, and some theologians have written, couldn't you say that the body is fallen? And it's our attitude that uh, is, needs to be affirmed, our sense of identity. And, and very closely related to that is, uh, this is 5B, why assume that the physical is good and the psychological is defective? Others have said it would be unsound to assume that the physical is good and the psychological is not good, or argue uh, that this dimorphic configuration of male and female fails to account for the effects of the fall, which is a fair question. We haven't spoken of the fact that we do live in a fallen world. Genesis 3 speaks to this, again, very cryptically and poetically, but things are not as they are supposed to be. Um, at, at the very least, it's worth noting that Genesis 9-6 reaffirms the fact that we are created in God's image um, post-fall. Um, and I think it may be, if we reflect on Genesis 3 and the fall, we see that sin has entered in through an act of the will, basically of thinking that we know better than God. Sin has actually entered in the world by attempting to access knowledge, 
um, knowledge of the good and evil apart from the God who has created all things good. Sin is, in a sense, going our own way. Um, in fact, sin manifests itself in disordered relationships. Adam and Eve, their relationship is disordered. Humanity's relationship with God is disordered. Humanity's relationship with the earth and creation is disordered. Humanity's relationship with our own bodies has the potential. It is disordered. This is the war of the spirit and the flesh, as Paul would speak about. Uh, and again, the creation accounts seem to give an unqualified affirmation that female and male bodies are created by God as good in and of themselves. Being biologically male or female is as such a good. And so while the material need not have a priority over the spiritual, in light of these creation accounts, male and female biology, I think, should be accorded um, what I've called epistemological priority. The epistemology is the study of how we come to know things. Um, well, it seems quite clear that our, uh, barring uh, other conditions that I haven't spoken about here, um, barring physiological ambiguity about one's gender, uh, it seems quite clear that we could identify someone as male or female based on their bodies. That is, but whatever one's interpretation of gender, and I happily admit that there are a variety of possibilities here, one's biology, except what, you know, the intersex condition where there's ambiguity, should have priority. Um, I'm, I'm moving close to a, uh, to a finish here. I want, um, I, I want to take up this idea uh, briefly about uh, the possibility of gender reassignment surgery. Uh, it may have, you may be hearing me as um, being very critical of the transgender community and saying, um, well, coming out as a maybe a hyper conservative on this issue and happy to call it sin from a distance. And so if you've got that impression so far, I've completely failed. So I'm going to try to I'm going to try to repair that um, in a few minutes. Maybe repair isn't the right word, but I wanted to to lay out theologically, morally, what, uh, what Scripture seems to say um, before we deal with the more practical issues. What about those who are struggling and wrestling with this? Is, is surgery ever an option? I mean, those are the hard questions, and we can't avoid them. Uh, and we may not arrive at any satisfying answer, and that, that's okay. We must still, uh, we are faced with the reality of wrestling with these questions. So uh, I found this interesting. Uh, Oliver O'Donovan, again, wrote uh, a book uh, 40 years ago called Begotten or Made. It's a, it's a tiny little booklet on ethics. And in this book, he has one chapter on what was known of, at the time, what was called transsexual surgery, like the very issue that is uh, facing us today. And he considered that from a, a Christian perspective and tried to evaluate or think through the possibilities and what is going on in a person's mind and what's the rationale for these. Um, I, I include this here because I think it's, it's unmatched 
in what I found, unmatched Christian thinking about a very complicated issue. And so he considers two possibilities or two interpretations of an individual having transgender or gender re-identification surgery. The first is a psychological case. The second he calls the social case. When, when he looks at the first case, um, he identifies several things. He sees the psychological case as someone trying to resolve an ambiguity between their sense of gender and their body. But here the feeling is, is that my true self is my inner self and that therefore my body is the wrong body and therefore I will have surgery so that I can become who I am supposed to be. In this view, one's surgically altered body becomes the true body. In his words, one's body here is treated, and I'm quoting, as an object set over against the personal subject located in the thinking, feeling mind. Fundamentally, he says, this view of surgery constitutes a denial of one's given biology. Um, it represents a failure to recognize, quoting again, um, it inevitably entails the shrinking from the glad acceptance of myself as a physical as well as a spiritual being and seeking self-knowledge in a kind of Gnostic withdrawal from material creation. It's important to note, and O'Donovan makes this point, that he is not trying to, he's not making these statements um, aiming at the experience of how gender dysphoria patients cope with the stress and the anxiety and the depression, nor is he trying to make any kind of cryptic comment about physicians who are trying to help them, nor does he deny that any patient who is driven to such an extreme is motivated out of anything but an urgent sense of need, of an urgent sense of survival. And I think that's, that's important uh, to state, lest this come across again as just uh, insensitive and overly preachy. So the other case he talks about is the social case of gender reassignment surgery. Here, rather than the individual saying, I'm getting my true body, the individual here says, I'm going to adapt a framework of pretense that allows me to get through the difficulties of life. Unlike the first perspective, this view tacitly accords a greater significance to the body by denying that one really is the gender that they feel themselves to be. So uh, I'm trying to summarize his nuanced argument with some bullet points. Uh, he sees this case as someone having surgery creating a framework of pretense to cope. Uh, this recognizes that one's body is, in some profound way, cons uh, constitutes one's identity. Um, he also says that in this case, one recognizes that one is not well. And it places, however, negatively demands on society to help this person fulfill I a gender identity by, in his words, kind of going along with the game. And so he asked quite candidly whether to the church as a social community can 
and should bear the weight of this kind of pretense, even though we are called to bear one another's burdens. So uh, this social theory also raises questions about the use of medicine as a tool for social management. Um, then he just stops. He says, you know, clearly there's at least two ways to interpret this. Um, it seems that the social case at least might be more defensible. And if there is any argument that might be made from a Christian perspective where in the extreme surgery may be possible, I think O'Donovan has hit on that. Though um, I'm sure a lot of Christians would weigh in and, and disagree. Um, we may still rightly wonder whether the body can and should be shaped in these ways, ever. Uh, and while on the moral level we can say that this fundamentally is a rejection of God's givenness, um, there, is, there is still the existential pastoral level here. And O'Donovan at least allows for cases where Christian individuals may feel as if there are, there's nothing left to do. N nothing left to do other than uh, suicide. Uh, and and th that's, a, that's a common outcome on whether you have the surgery or not. Um, so here are some just high-level implications. Uh, a, this is under five, a Christian approach to gender dysphoria, I think in, in contrast to what the medical community is saying, should focus on realigning one's sense of gender identity with one's given body. Um, I think uh, theologically that's, that's the sound approach. So um, if you have teenagers or your uh, family who are struggling with this, it seems to me that a Christian counselor would be aware that maybe your feelings about your identity should indeed be challenged. Um, why, why shouldn't we challenge uh, our sense of who we are vis-a-vis -vis our God-given body? So that's, that's nearly the opposite approach to uh, what's going on in the medical community. Um, where it's just taken as a given that, well, if you identify this way, then who are we to tell you otherwise? We will help you cope, and if necessary, we will help you transition. Um, and just, just for what it's worth, the, uh, going back to Max Robinson and the article that uh, that, that was quoted from, uh, this particular author is not a Christian at all, and she's deeply troubled by what she's seeing uh, among health professionals, where um, teenage girls, uh, like in a, in a five-fold increase over the last 10 years, are increasingly identifying as gender neutral, and in, in some cases, identifying as male. And she's chronicled numerous cases where therapists have been brought in, and what ends up happening is that the parents get chastised by the professionals for suggesting that they ought to learn to adapt to their own bodies. Rather, it's almost a default condition that we will accept your sense of gender identity even though you're 13, and we will try to accommodate you and ease your feelings of dysphoria. She is deeply troubled by this. She's developed a term. It's called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And it's highly correlated to two disturbing statistics, whether whether or not you're on social media as a 13-year-old, and whether or not you have a friend who is trans. Those are two overwhelming 
statistics in this movement. Um, a Christian approach, uh, I think, ought to start with, okay, we've got a God-given body. How can we help you learn to love your body? Uh, we also must acknowledge point B, however, that there may be a biological component to gender dysphoria. We are still, still trying to sort that out. Um, and there may indeed be a, a, a possibility someday where there may uh, be a physiological intervention in the brain that would help, again, align one's sense of identity with one's God-given body. But if we don't have a framework for what it means to be human, or we're quite happy being inarticulate about that or happy to identify the inner self as the true self, then it seems to be in our culture there's very little reason um, to think otherwise. And so I think Christian teaching here, um, if indeed this is Christian teaching, seems to be deeply countercultural at this point. Um, letter C, here we go. Is gender reassignment surgery ever permissible? Um, I don't know. Um, this remains a huge point of contention. Some Christian ethicists may be willing to explore this in exceedingly rare and exceptional cases where psychotherapy has proven ineffective uh, and the person's having difficulty managing life. But any kind of transition like this inevitably wrecks or profoundly affects the lives of people around them. Um, just this morning, I was uh, having a discussion uh, with my friend Matt, and he just happened to mention that um, one of his coworkers last year, um, somewhere in his 40s, married with kids, has uh, left his wife and is transitioning, has, has actually had the surgery uh, to become a woman. And the thought was, I mean, um, you know, as Christians, I don't, I don't think our first response should be, you know, shock and horror. Uh, but his statement, Matt's statement was, and I think it was, uh, I think he was right on the mark. He said, I can't imagine what kind of pain uh, this person must have been enduring for decades. Uh, not saying that makes it right. Um, but th the realities of a fallen world are that sometimes, um, well, more than just sometimes, we are faced with two choices that are not between good and evil, but between more sin and less sin. Um, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer supposedly an out-and-out -out pacifist? Was he wrong for attempting to assassinate Hitler um, to save the Jews? Um, there's no good or, <laughs> there's no right or wrong there. There's two tough choices that implicate uh, us in sin. Um, and I think, uh, I think for some individuals in rare cases that may be the case, but I'm, you know, I'm willing to have my mind changed on that. I'm certainly no defender of surgery um, as a first option. There may be cases, um, but please don't press me on what the specifics might be because I'm not, I'm not really sure, and you certainly don't have to agree with me. Um, the last point I would make is that this would, this would adhere, if it could ever be done, it would adhere closely to what O'Donovan was, were, was saying as um, it, it may be more morally defensible if someone is saying this is a framework of pretense. And I know 
that God has given me a body, but I also am on the verge of killing myself, and the therapy hasn't made any difference. So th there's a specific, again, um, there may be counter-arguments for that. Finally, um, some pastoral and practical concerns, uh, and I, these I, I want to stress, uh, and I think we, we must affirm these, that all people who identify as transgender are created in God's image, because everybody is created in God's image, and there's nothing that we can do uh, to completely eradicate that image. And if everyone is created in God's image, then everyone is worthy of care. Everyone deserves to be listened to. Perhaps deserves to be listened to before we start pronouncing um, our judgments on particular activities and behaviors. This will include uh, you know, avoiding dismissive labels and making jokes about transgendered individuals. Um, I spoke at a, at a men's conference yesterday morning. I gave a, uh, a, a briefer version of this talk, which you may be wishing you had heard. Um, but uh, you know, afterwards, uh, I was, first I was shocked at the attendance. I, I figured at a men's conference there wouldn't be that many people interested, and there, there was no room in the, there was no room left to sit. Um, but I still, uh, during that, you know, the break time, I would have a couple Christians um, come up to me and say some rather disturbing things about transgendered individuals, um, and some disturbing and rather simplistic statements about what it means to be a man. Um, again, I don't, uh, anyone who is considering surgery uh, is, is likely not doing it because they're pushing a Hollywood agenda. They're trying to survive life. And I think we need, at the very least, we need to own up to that, uh, to the, re the painful reality that many, many people who have gender dysphoria face. Um, we do ourselves no favor by condemning from a distance without hearing people's stories. Uh, having said that, we can still disagree over the significance of gender identity and what that means while still loving the person. But my plea, again, is, is first to listen. Um, I think the deepest need that we all have as human beings is simply to be heard. And that's in our, in our world of increasing technology that is exceedingly rare. Who has, who has the time to talk? Uh, another point, uh, we need to be wary about baptizing female or male stereotypes. This, this was a, a dangerous point to make at a men's conference, but I did it anyway. Uh, and they were, they were appreciative, right? Um, yes, there are stereotypes out there, uh, but there are also men who like to drink coffee and read poetry. Um, I'm not saying I'm one of them, but... Um, <laughs> Um, um, in all honesty, um, that's um, it, I, I'm all for men's groups, uh, and I'm all for women's groups, and I, we need uh, we need groups where men can be men and meet with men and talk about male issues, and uh, the same thing for women. Um, so uh, we ought to also be thinking strategically about avoiding certain language that suggests that guys just care about certain things. I'll just leave it at that. Um, another point, the, this culture war model uh, of shaping 
or engaging culture I don't find particularly helpful. Um, I think we can agree, well, Christians do agree, quite frankly, over the nature, the method, and the rationale for cultural engagement. And here I'm just referring to uh, websites that I've been trolling um, over, the, over the last week or so, just to try to, to get, again, to see if there's something new out there um, on the horizon. Um, and here, I don't, uh, I don't want to step on any toes, but I, um, if you have an online presence, my plea is to avoid um, dismissive labels, to avoid um, snarky comments, um, to avoid um, calling people liberals, um, to avoid um, calling this movement an assault on the family or education or our values, even though there's probably some truth to that. Um, what has disturbed me greatly is, um, I'm thinking of a, a couple of particular sites, and I'm not, I'm not going to say their name, but it's uh, Christian sites where um, the language and the tone seem to come primarily from a place of fear and a face of anger. And it, it, it flows in nicely with this cultural war, cultural battle um, kind of uh, methodology of cultural engagement. We need to keep the liberals from infecting our schools and X, Y, and Z. But I have trouble, uh, and look, I'm all for political engagement. I'm all for writing our congressmen and our representatives. But I, I'm not really convinced that Jesus would be all that concerned about signing our petitions. Um, in fact, he'd probably say to, to those who are in the transgender community, let's go grab some lunch. You know, how willing are we to do that? Um, perfect love casts out all fear. So um, rather than be combative and dismissive, I would rather see Christians at least acknowledge the complexities um, and uh, to try to invite people into conversations and even relationships. I mean, that, that's how people change, right? Let, let the spirit convict people. Uh, they're not going to be convicted if uh, they're not around Christians. Finally, um, this is just a generic coverall right here. Uh, many questions remain that are difficult to answer from a Christian perspective. And it's a lead-in to like our question time, if we have any time left, for, um, for you to continue offering questions that I probably won't be able to answer. Um, uh, Thank you for your patience and attention, and uh, by all means, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to take questions, and I think until about two, and then, we're, and then we're, we'll let you go and enjoy the rest of today. Yes? Uh, I, I appreciate what you were saying about recognizing the pain of the individual. Like if someone's yep. at the point of body mutilation, mm -hmm. there, there's pain going on there to the individual, and our compassion and care is uh, people reaching out to save mankind, to save that no one's lost. The question I have that I'm struggling with is, you've described it as a framework of pretense, but we're organizationally being told, we're not even being told about that pain, we're being told to placate and participate yep. in the framework. Yep. Where we're seeing, yeah. I don't know how to engage sports, where we yep. see males beating females in sports, and we're to celebrate that because they're actually uh, they're identifying as a female. Mm -hmm. 
or we're seeing confusion in roles of employment soldiering. Yep. yep. Where we're saying, yes, we don't understand it, and it doesn't make logical sense. You cannot make mm -hmm. coherent logical sense. Mm -hmm. But we expect you to ignore that. And mm -hmm. so from a Christian or yep. society perspective, I don't know how to deal with that. No, that's a fair question. Uh, I, I'm not sure either. And to put it more strongly, uh, it does feel like it's being crammed down our throats um, on some level. Um, I, I think I'm not against systemic opposition, but I, I, I prefer like a model of subversive activity, which is, um, you know, more, I, I, maybe that's not a helpful term either because that falls into this kind of war model that I just don't like. Um, I, I go back to a, a, a un, well, I, I find a helpful statement that's not going to be even remotely helpful for your question, but I'm going to start there as I think out loud. Um, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, spiritual discipline guy, Dallas Willard, um, you know, in, I think in his book, Divine Conspiracy, he talked about how um, in light of God's sovereignty, our world is a perfectly safe place to be. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that we might not come into harm's way, but it, it, uh, that maybe reduces the anxiety level about trying to win. Um, ha having said that, I don't, you know, more specifically, how do you, how do you accommodate if you're a coach of a team and they say this? Um, you could voice your concern, but then at the same time, I would, I would engage the people who are on your team and, um, try to love them as Christ would. Um, wh who would Christ see uh, as maybe a good question. I, I'm not sure myself how to answer that, although Christ would see right through people. Um, I, I don't, I, my concern is, is that the more opposition we raise, the, the, and I'm not against it, but I think it needs to be wise and careful, but the more opposition we raise, the more we write ourselves out of a conversation because we're immediately dismissed as hate speech, or you know, you can't you can't disagree with someone in our culture anymore without being identified as a hate group, um, and, and that's deeply unfortunate. That's what I mean by subversive. Well, forget what um, for, forget what policies are being passed down. If you want to voice an email of like kind opposition, um, I, I think that's totally appropriate. But then I wouldn't take it out on the individual person. And maybe there's a way to say, well, I'm not. I'm probably not going to be able to change the system. I might be able to, but I can, I can work and love the people that God has put in front of me. Um, and that's, I, but I feel, I feel your pain, and I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't have any good answer for that. And, and we do need more Christians writing and thinking about how we, how we, how we interact in culture. Um, I'm sorry, that's the best I've got for now. Uh, yeah, go ahead and then... On a different topic, but you know, on homosexuality, that Jeffrey Sandover yep. made this comment of differentiating between the agenda and the yes. individuals. Yes. Yep. And and yes, as Christians, we oppose the agenda, but we can't confuse the two because yep. then we attack individuals. Yep. And so you know, we, we need to treat them with the love of Christ and, and try to reach them, but but not distinguishing between the two. We attack the individual as if they represent or are promoting mm -hmm. the agenda, which you know we, we have no idea where they're coming from. 
Oh, that's very helpful. Thank you. But the, the gender reassignment surgery, and I guess the question I would have, or maybe mm -hmm. changing the scenario again, um, if um, if somebody who was homosexual said that the only I'm going to commit suicide unless I engage in homosexual behavior, mm -hmm. I mean we would still say, you know, I mean we could understand the rationale, mm -hmm. but I don't know that that would justify the behavior. Sure. And, and I, I mean, mm -hmm. to me, it would seem the same in you know sex reassignment surgery. You could understand somebody in so much emotional pain that in their mind there is no other option. Mm -hmm. But as a Christian, I couldn't say that that justifies the choice that they've made. And yeah. Um, yeah. I, there, there may be some. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I think there, if, if you want to talk about the fact that we all have sex drives, right? And so whatever, whether they're cyclical or not, I mean, they're age and physio, you know, physiology dependent, aging dependent. Um, a homosexual may not always have the desire, just like heterosexuals don't, we don't want to have sex all the time. Um, I, I, so th that may be a point of tension in the life of a homosexual at more punctuated instances where, so far as I'm aware, someone who's suffering from this profound feeling of dysphoria over their wrong body, that, that's like a near baseline constant. It's just, it's always present. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that, um, I'm not saying I'm ever comfortable with surgery as an option. Um, I'm, I'm just not quite ready yet to rule it out in every single circumstance. Um, and uh, again, you will probably find in the, in the next couple of years, I suspect there will be some books written on this where there will be Christian ethicists who might say um, there are no exceptions for this ever. Uh, th that's a possibility. Um, it'd be, I, I'd like to hear, the, I, it would be, it'd be interesting to hear the arguments for it, but I, I suspect what they would look like. Um, but I know I, I, I take your point, and I, again, appreciate Satinover's comment on that. That's, it, it's hard for us to do that because, frankly, uh, we, we're on the receiving end of that oftentimes, too. Oh, you're a Christian. Okay, well, I know your agenda, so um, we, you know, you don't have a voice at the table because I know what you're about. Uh, and th is that fair? Well, no, of course not. Um, okay, there was uh, one here, and then we'll go to this side, and yeah. I just, uh, I understand what you're saying in terms of the individuals who have really hit that point. Mm -hmm. We should be showing compassion and stuff. What I would kind of want to address more is what going back into the uh, social wars that are going on, mm -hmm. especially when we're dealing with young children, elementary yep. age, middle school, um, high school, even college level yep. students, that as part of this cultural war that's going on and the overall acceptance that's being done and promoted, how much would you say this is, I see this a lot of times with some of my students, more like a trend. Yeah, absolutely, yes. You, you, you're entirely correct, uh, and that's part of what uh, next time I want to address more. I, I want to make a PowerPoint slide. I wasn't sure how to do this with the picture of an umbrella with the transgender label on it, and then um, underneath that, like gender dysphoria, and then uh, gender nonconformity as a political social statement. It, it, it seems to me um, that uh, 
well, and I'll, I'll have statistics next week. I'll probably misquote them now, but uh, for teenage kids who are experiencing a sense of dysphoria or a sense that they were not, uh, that they're in the wrong body, um, something like uh, above 80 to 85% of them who report this will resolve eventually, will come to re-identify with their own body. I mean, I'm, I remember, and I don't. I, I'm not trying to make light of this by this example, but um, like when I was in, like when I was in high school, like there were no males who had earrings, right? Because that was so. People started piercing their ears, as kind of a well. That's I mean, there's there's some fluidity there, right? Oh, but you're you're a man, but you're in you know you're piercing your ears. What's up? It was kind of a fad. It it was it was tied into some rebellion. Um, I'm not saying I can understand why teenage girls five times more than boys right now are becoming gender neutral, but I suspect it's due to uh, a profound level of discomfort with um, their appearance. So I, I, I just saw a couple statistics, and I, I don't know if they're accurate, but I mean, they took my breath away. Um, something like 52% uh, of 13-year-old girls were not happy with their bodies, and at age 17, the percentage was around 78 to 80 percent, were just not happy with their bodies, appearance-wise, whatever. Um, and and that's, I, that's the odd thing of our culture, is... I don't know that that is any different than the way boys and girls were 30 years ago. No. Well, exactly, and so this is a this is pure speculation on my part, but I suspect that a lot of this going on with teenagers today is is in that genre. It's just we have a new label for it, and it's called gender non-binary or gender non-conforming or gender ambiguous because it's um, it it uh, it capitulates or it affirms that you know sometimes we're not sure what we think about ourselves, and we don't want to be we don't want to be pigeonholed or labeled. Um, again, that's purely speculation on, on my part. I will have some more informed data next week when we, we look more specifically at just the topic of teenage children and what's going on with this rapid onset gender uh, dysphoria. So uh, one here and then uh, somewhere, sorry, in the, yes. My question relates to um, the pronouns, the various pronouns that are out there. And yeah. how do we as believers respond to mm -hmm. that Yep. The goal is to love these people. Yep. Is it our responsibility to call them by what they want to be called, or how do we? <laughs> I had I had someone else ask me about the, a teacher who said they've got a student who is now identifying the other way. What should I do? Um, I think personally, for the sake of a relationship, I'll call them what they want me to call them. Um, you know, um, sometimes Bill wants to go by Billy. I know it's not the same thing as oh, don't call me he anymore. Call me she. But um, if if you if you want to draw a line in the sand there, you you've probably you're probably sacrificing any kind of meaningful conversation in the future. Um, th that's my personal take. Um, there may be other you know arguments on the other side, but I, in the interest of relationship and influence, you want me to call you she, um, or can I just call you by your first name or whatever name, you know, maybe the name has changed too. Um, John, Joanne, I know that happens. Um, call, them, uh, call them how they want to be addressed. 
as maybe just a common courtesy, and don't, don't try to make it bigger than that. That's my personal take. Um, uh, here, and then, sorry, and then one, so, Randy, were you, did you have a question? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Um, I want, yeah, no, no, that's sorry, I'm not going to add, yeah, I don't want more than, okay, and then I thought there was another hand back in the middle, and then, uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, I don't know if you have any research, but uh, the, the people that do decide that they are going to be transgender, and I'm not talking about children or teens, I'm talking about adults, yep. what percentage of them have thrown away their faith, because I would imagine that there's this real struggle. Yes. Yep. Their Christianity or what they may have believed at mm -hmm. some point and the decisions that they're making, what? Um, it's not uncommon. I mean, there, there have been, you know, some have speculated, well, this is, can probably be traced back to some kind of early childhood sexual abuse. There may be a link there, but there are ample cases of uh, people as adults who have transitioned who grew up in Christian homes and were, you know, loved and affirmed. Um, but it's, uh, it's heartbreaking to hear stories where, in many cases, people who have done that have left the Christian faith because they're convinced that God couldn't possibly love them. Which, you know, it's, uh, it's terrible. Um, it's it's not, not for everybody, but uh, it's, it's quite rare. Um, it's quite rare for individuals to, to continue to affirm their Christian beliefs un unless they're uh, very open Christian beliefs to begin with. Uh, and, and there are churches who would, you know, who, who would happily embrace this and say, yes, you know, you're still a child of God. And that's not, that's not untrue. That is still true. Does God still love trans individuals, those who have transitioned? Of course. Um, but yeah, the, the stories are not encouraging at all. Uh, Mike, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Todd, I would like to compliment you on uh, giving us a, a talk on a, on a topic that's extremely difficult to talk on. I, I would uh, speak to you as an OBGYN service provider. Mm -hmm. That's what you called me, right? No, I, no, I didn't. No, that's... <laughs> I'm all for doctors' rights. I mean, doctors should, doctors should push back and say, look, you need this, etc. I have been blessed to be able to assign gender some 6,000 times. And I would tell you that that's that is something that's a state requirement for yes yeah what's well, good to know yep and so you don't have you know uh, something from that child at the time to be able to do it so all you have is the body to do the assignment I've had a handful of times in my career when we didn't know yep and I one point I would make is that it's very important to not assign a gender at that point absolutely one yep way to, to cause a person a lifelong grief is to give them a, an yep. assignment and then it turn out to be Different. Yep. So that's something yes. that's important for us to do. But I would like to reiterate a point that you did, and uh, that's that you have to love the person. Mm. I mean, Randy's spoken to us now for how many Sundays in a row, uh, you know, where, where our assignment is to get along. Mm -hmm. and, and these folks are, are no mm -hmm. different than that. And so even though we may have strong feelings about, you know, a lot of this, mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I do and I admit I do, but when you see these people, they, they need to be accepted mm. just as any of us do. Mm. We're all sinners. Yeah. So that, that is, uh, <coughs> and I appreciate it. Well, no, well, thank you. And just if you didn't hear, and that's a very important point. There, there's a condition known as intersex, and there's a, a few other, uh, I don't have the technical names for them, where uh, the genitalia is ambiguous, 
Uh, it, it is um, under certain assumptions of formation and understanding of what it means to be male or female. Uh, Well-intending parents have said, well, let's just get this cleared up right now, only to have these individuals um, mature and, and have profound realizations that I am in the wrong body. So the parents trying to do what's, what's best end up, uh, in many cases, irretrievably harming their kids. So in cases of ambiguity, it is always better to let, let, let the individual grow up. And if that individual is comfortable remaining ambiguous, so be it. But if there is a time in the future when they clearly identify as male or female and want to pursue the surgery, I, mean, I, don't, I don't see any moral quandary with, with that. Um, and, but that intersex condition is vastly different than um, gender dysphoria. But, but thank you. Um, oh, uh, one final question. I'm sorry. I will stay back and answer more questions. But yeah, go ahead. Do you have any recommendations for how the church can affirm our children as they're growing up? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I would encourage children, encourage parents to let their let kids be kids, and if boys want to play with Barbies, try not to freak out about it, or or vice versa. Um, but but inevitably, the discussion will come up. Um, I've had several people come and talk to me about how their son or daughter is hanging out with a, a trans person who is very confused, and it's influencing them. Um, can, can keep the lines of conversation open with, with your kids. Um, I, I'm, I am wary of stereotypes, but I'm also happy to affirm when you see your son or daughter pursuing something, young kids, uh, and it seems a bit maybe fluid gender-wise, uh, don't, don't worry about that too much. I mean, in, in, in the vast majority of cases, uh, whatever may appear to be aberrant really isn't at all, and people come to accept their their God-given genders. Um, I know that's very vague. I don't, um, I, I, I'm struggling to come up with anything more specific. Uh, I'm not trying to get you to come back next week, but I will. Um, uh, this, this book that I mentioned, uh, Mark Yarhouse, um, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, I will, I will bring a copy with me. If uh, It's a very well-written book, and I am going to interact a little bit with him and what he has to say specifically on uh, data with teens and teenagers and more of the pastoral issues, um, three different frameworks for looking at this whole issue of gender. Um, how do you respond as a church when you have uh, kids who seem to be, who are coming and they're confused or they're, they're, they're ambiguous and they're happy in their ambiguity? So um, again, thank you for a very, your patience and attention for a very long-winded talk. Um, thanks. thanks.